And join me where we left off last week, John chapter 19. Not looking at the birth of Christ this morning, but the conclusion to his death and his burial. John chapter 19, and we are in verses 31 through 42. John 19, verses 31 through 42. And we began this last week, and we have seen, as John records, the aftermath of Jesus' death. He does it not in a cold accounting of a way, nor does he give a sad description of a friend who he has just seen executed before his eyes. No, what John gives us is a detailed look from an eyewitness perspective, and it is filled with theological significance and hope. He sees taking place here events predicted in the Old Testament, texts, promises about the coming Messiah. Look at verse 35. He does this, he records all of this for a specific reason. It is for us to believe the glorious Jesus. Verse 35, he who has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you, and the you is emphatic, this is for us, it's personal, so that you yourselves might also believe, believe in the same way that John has believed in the glorious Jesus. Specifically here to believe that Jesus is not a crucified victim. He's not merely someone who's hanging lifeless on a cross. No, believe that Jesus, even in his death, is a glorious Savior from sin and a returning and conquering King. Note two words in verse 35, testify and testimony. Key words, testify and testimony. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is True, this is one of those themes that has run through John's gospel. John 1.8, John the Baptist was sent by God to testify about the light, about Christ. John 1.15, John the Baptist testified about him. John 4, there's a Samaritan woman. She returns to his own town, her own town, and she testified of Jesus. John 5, Jesus says that his miracles testify about me. John 5, 39, the scriptures testify about me. John 8, the Father who sent me testifies of me. John 15, Jesus promises that the Spirit, when he comes, will testify of the glory of Jesus. There have been 19 chapters of testimony after testimony so that we would believe the glorious identity of Christ. Well, now as chapter 19 concludes, John, the gospel writer, he adds his testimony, his eyewitness accounts of seemingly insignificant and random and irrelevant details of things that are happening to Jesus, things that Jesus has nothing to do with. He's dead. 
And what John shows us is that each of these details are not insignificant at all. No, they have actually been prophesied before, and each of the details shows us just how glorious the crucified Jesus is. Let's look at the text, start in verse 31, let's read it. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen as testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. If you are here last week, you know how we're looking at this passage We're noting four glorious identities of Jesus, four glorious identities of Jesus, each based on four messianic prophecies, each of these prophecies connected to certain details that surround the aftermath of Jesus' death. We looked at the first two last week. There was, first of all, glorious identity number one. Jesus is the final Passover lamb who alone shields the sinner from God's wrath. He's the final Passover lamb who alone shields the sinner from God's wrath. That's the connection that's made in verses 32 and 36. So why did the Roman soldiers not break Jesus' legs, even though Pilate ordered them to do that? Answer, verse 36, these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. That's Exodus 12, 46. Gives us the requirements of God of every Passover lamb sacrificed. We looked at that in detail. Even in death, Jesus continues to be the unblemished lamb of God who alone Just like that first Passover sacrifice who alone shields us from God's wrath. 
Even in death, he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's an amazing detail. These Roman soldiers do not even realize they're fulfilling it. And yet at the very same time, the chief priests are following this requirement, not breaking the legs. Thousands of lambs, sacrifices in the temple. Here are the Roman soldiers outside of the temple, outside of the city. They're doing the exact same thing for the final Passover lamb. Led into glorious identity number two. Jesus is the son who sends the Holy Spirit to his people. He is the son who sends the Holy Spirit to his people. We saw that detail in verse 34. John records that water after Jesus is pierced by the soldier with the spear. Immediately water comes out of Jesus's body. Why this detail? Answer, because John saw this as a picture, a living parable, a reminder of something Jesus promised earlier in his ministry. Remember that John is very picturesque as he describes Christ's life. Here, John is bringing us back to John 7, where Jesus promised, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his, from Jesus' innermost being, from his belly, will flow rivers of living water. That's picturesque. What's the water? Who's the water? John adds, verse 39, this, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit would come like flowing water given by Christ, sent by Christ. But it required Jesus' death, continue that verse, for the Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here, as Jesus hangs lifeless, John reminds us in a very picturesque way that even though Jesus is dead, his promise to send his spirit has not died with him. It will be fulfilled just as Jesus has promised. Again, what seems like an insignificant detail it's actually filled with so much meaning. Jesus is the Son who sends the Holy Spirit to his people. Leads into glorious identity number three. This is where we left off last week. Glorious identity number three. Jesus is the pierced God who will return in final judgment. Jesus is the pierced God who will return in final judgment. Look back to verse 34. Again, a random act of violence by one of the soldiers. The soldier decides to do what he did not have the authority to do, to do something he was not commanded to do. He would do something that has no historical precedence taking place at crucifixions. This is not Roman custom. And yet still the soldier takes his three and a half foot spear with that iron head on it. And verse 34, he pierces, 
he stabs, he drives the spear through Jesus' side. Why? Why? Well, maybe it's because he hates Jesus. And he's angry that this Jesus would claim to be a rival king to Caesar. Or maybe it's because he hates the Jews. He wants to shame the Jews even further. Here's your pierced, speared king. Whatever the human reason might have been, though, and no doubt it was sinful, verse 37 tells us there's a divine purpose behind all of it. A divine purpose. Verse 37, another scripture. Another messianic prophecy needed to be fulfilled. It's the scripture that said, they shall look on him whom they pierced. It's a divine purpose. One commentator wrote this. Even this soldier was divinely guided in doing this. The Roman government had not authorized the act, but God did. And the prophecy John has in mind here is Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, 10. It's not a prophecy about a sacrificed lamb like Exodus was. But this is a prophecy about a returning and conquering judge. And I want you to see this. So turn back to the book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah. And begin in chapter 12. Zechariah 12. Here's the prophecy. We'll get a running start. Look at verse 2, Zechariah 12, 2. And here Zechariah describes the final days leading up to the second coming of Christ. That's the context, historical context that he's pointing to. Verse 2 sets the stage. Behold, Yahweh's speaking. Behold, I am going to make, this is God's sovereign design, his work, over every event that is recorded, transpires. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup, a large basin that causes reeling. This is staggered drunkenness to all the peoples around. Here's the picture. There's one day that is coming when the nations will become so consumed by anger against God's people, so drunk with hostility that they will wage a final battle against them. Verse 2 calls it a siege, a war against Jerusalem and also against Judah. Now, this is referring to not the war today in Israel. This is not a prophecy of today. This is a prophecy of the final battle at the end of the seven-year tribulation, a war recorded in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 38, recorded later in Revelation 9, 14, 16, 19. This is the final battle of Armageddon. It's the end of the tribulation period. Verse 3 here adds that it will come about in that day. Key word, that day. The day not only of the nation's anger against Israel, but even more than that, the day of God's coming wrath against his enemies. 
time of the Messiah King's victorious return. Verse 3 again, in that day, I, Yahweh, will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. Though fueled by anger, though under siege, the evil nations will not extinguish God's people. They can't. God's people will be made this heavy stone. They will not be removed. Why? Because of verse 4. In that day, declares Yahweh, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. I myself will wage war on behalf of my people. I will fight for them. I will watch over the house of Judah. I'll sovereignly protect them. Defend them. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And horses in that day were the very symbol of an army's strength. And yet it doesn't matter the number. God indeed has sovereign strength, defending, conquering strength. Drop down to verse 8. In that day, Yahweh will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in that day, I, Yahweh, will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And just mark it. Who is doing the defending? Who is doing the destroying? It is God himself, Yahweh himself, covenant God of Israel. I will strike every horse, verse 4. I will watch over. And now here, verse 8, I In verse 9, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against my people. Listen to how Ezekiel describes the scene. I, still God speaking, I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand, Israel's enemies. You will fall on the mountains of Israel you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. It's graphic. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. And I will send fire, the very picture of destruction, Upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands, this is destruction to every part of the world. And they will know that I am Yahweh, my holy name. I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Patience of God has run its course. And the nations, unbelieving nations, And the world will know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day, the future day of judgment, the day of which I have spoken. Revelation also speaks to this day, Yahweh's victory, and it is again graphic. God's victory at this point is so complete, Revelation 19, that an angel 
will cry out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you, the birds, may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. God has destroyed all of them. They've risen against his people. He comes to save his people and destroy their enemies. It's a graphic scene. One commentator summarizes it this way. God will not allow his adversaries to escape. On that day, he will destroy every enemy. Those opposing Israel will not merely be repulsed, but defeated and utterly destroyed. Thus, the conquest of the promised land and the ultimate deliverance of Israel will be accomplished. And so it is at this point, this day, that God will finally fulfill all of his covenants with Israel. And he will finally welcome his people into their promised kingdom. question is this, though. How does that happen? How will God destroy the unbelieving nations? Let's ask it this way, though. It's a better question. Who will wage this war? Who will wage this war? Continue into Zechariah 12, 10. Here's the answer. This is the verse that John now refers to in John 19. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. There's a contrast. And Israel's enemies, God pours down wrath and defeat and destruction. But upon his people on this final day, he pours down saving grace and salvation. Watch now. Verse 10. So that they will look on me. And notice again who's talking. This is Yahweh himself. He's been speaking throughout the entire passage. So that they will look on me, the returning God, Yahweh, whom they have pierced. That's the passage. This is the prophecy. And this is not just Yahweh, God in general. This is not God the Father. This is Yahweh, Jesus, the side-pierced God. The implication is this. When the soldiers rammed that spear through Jesus' side, they were impaling God himself, eternal God himself. And according to both Zechariah and John, what the nations will see one day when Christ returns now in great power, what they will see is not the pierced hands of Jesus, not, not the piercing here. No, what they will see is the stabbed side of Jesus. The word Zechariah uses here of that Hebrew word, for pierce is a word used 11 times. It's always in reference to a spear impaling someone. Isaiah 53 talks about the pierced Messiah. 
the nails. Here it's the pierced, stabbed Jesus. So here's the sovereign providence now, sovereign providence of God working itself out to perfection. Even while Jesus hangs dead on the cross, if, just think about the implication, if the soldier does not ram his spear through Jesus, Jesus is not the returning Messiah he claimed to be. Here's the perfect wisdom of God because God is spirit. He cannot be pierced. So how in the world can this prophecy be fulfilled? Answer by the eternal God taking upon himself human flesh, incarnating himself. It's sovereignty, it's wisdom, uniting. And note the timing of when this prophecy will be fulfilled. John 19 says, they shall look, it's future, they shall look on, whom, on him whom they pierced. That prophecy was not fulfilled when Jesus died. Yes, it is true, there are those around the cross seeing Jesus pierced. That's not the prophecy. This prophecy will be fulfilled when the Spirit opens Israel's eyes on that last day. When they will finally see Jesus in truth. Finally confess him to be their Messiah. This will be fulfilled when this same Jesus, again, who's hanging dead on the cross in John 19, returns in devastating fury, according to Zechariah 12. Continue Zechariah's prophecy here, verse 10. They will look on him whom they've pierced as he returns from heaven, and they will mourn for him. This is repentance, this is conversion. Verse 11, in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, mourning over sin, mourning because they have rejected Christ, but now they confess him. Chapter 13, verse 1, in that day a fountain of salvation will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. What the pierced God accomplished on the cross is now credited to those in Israel who mourn over sin and confess Jesus to be their king. Not only is Zechariah promising Israel's physical deliverance, which he is, but even more, he's promising a future day of spiritual salvation. Open eyes, changed hearts. We'll go over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, where Zechariah describes this day as one of unquestionable victory. Look at verse 3. Then Yahweh, the pierced Yahweh, Christ himself, will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This is a warrior king. In that day, verse four, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is significant. This is the very mountain where King David fled when usurped by Absalom. The very mountain where King Zedekiah fled when escaping the Babylonians. 
But on this day, there will be no fleeing by this king. No, instead, the mountain will flee. Continue the verse. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Verse 5, then the Lord, then Yahweh, my God, will come, the pierced God, and all the holy ones with him. And if you are Christ, that's you. We come with him. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. This is cosmic upheaval. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And verse 9, the Lord will be, watch this, the Lord will be on this day king over all the earth. And who's king over all the earth? It's the pierced God. The Romans pierce him. He comes as king over Rome. In that day, verse 9, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. This is the prophecy that also bookends the book of Revelation. So at the end of Revelation, we read it. Christ returns. He returns to judge and wage war. Well, listen how the book opens with a reference to Zechariah 12, also to John 19. A warning for the believer, rather a promise to the believer, a warning to the unbeliever. Here's how the book opens. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who, what? Pierced him. So as to be a man. He's coming to wage war. Turn back to John 19. That's the prophecy John has in mind when he sees Christ pierced by the soldiers. So understand what John is saying then. As Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross, John's point is this. Christ has not been defeated. He has not been defeated far from it. In fact, he will resurrect in victory. Why? Because he's the pierced God. And he will return in glory. Because he's the Yahweh spoken of in Zechariah 12. And when he comes back, though on the surface it looks like Jesus has been defeated. But when he comes back, he will vanquish his foes. And he will save his people. And he will finally establish his kingdom. When we look to the cross, we must not stay there. He's still not on the cross. In fact, we'll see in the next few weeks, he is not in the grave. He's at the Father's right hand, and one day he's returning. It's glorious identity number three. Jesus is the pierced God who will one day return in final judgment. It leads to the final detail John records. The aftermath of Jesus' death, the final glorious identity, glorious identity number four. Jesus is the suffering servant 
who is both Savior and King. He is the suffering servant who is both Savior and King. Look at verse 38. After these things, so we're moving from the evil unnamed soldiers to now two specific followers of Christ. We're moving from anger and hatred against Jesus to now love and faith in Jesus. Beginning here with Joseph of Arimathea, he's most likely a ruling member of Israel, a wealthy man. Notice the phrase, though. Being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, and that's key. The point here is that for some time, Joseph had been more fearful of the religious leaders than God's son. In fact, this phrase places Joseph as one of the rulers described back in John 12. Rulers who believed in Christ, believed intellectually, but that's it. Did not believe in a saving way. Why? Because of the Pharisees. It's because of their threats. So it include Joseph, also Nicodemus. They were not confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So up to this point, Joseph was fearful to lose his place of influence amongst the religious leaders. This is intellectual faith. This is non-saving faith. He's fearful to become an outcast of the religious community. But all of that changes in verse 38. The Spirit works. Joseph now sees. And Joseph's fear of his fellow religious leaders is now replaced with an awe and a love and a reverence for Christ. This is saving faith. I testify of these things so that you may believe. Believe like this. This is why I continue verse 38. Because of faith now, in Christ Joseph, he uses his influence amongst the Sanhedrin. He gains access to Pilate. Verse 38, he asks Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. This is a tremendous change. From cowardly faith to now open confession. And put verse 38 in its first century context here. This is not just Joseph affirming his allegiance to Jesus, which would have put him at odds with the religious leaders. And this is not just Joseph making himself ceremonially unclean, taking down a dead body, burying it, which would have barred him from celebrating the Sabbath. But even more than that, this is Joseph taking ownership of a crucified criminal, an executed rival of Caesar himself, which would have put him at odds with Rome. I'm testifying of these things so that you may also believe, believe like this man. 
And on the surface, Joseph has everything to lose here. And yet that's the cost of saving faith. Now, normally a crucified victim once removed from the cross would have been thrown into a common grave with the other criminals disposed of. It's normal procedure. That's not what happens to Jesus. Why? Because this is not, or that is not how the promised Messiah was prophesied to be buried. God is still sovereign, orchestrating every detail. So here's another passage John has in mind. This is Isaiah 53. It's a prophecy of the suffering servant, the servant who would be despised and forsaken of men. He'd be acquainted with grief. He'd be crushed for our iniquities, scourged for our healing, oppressed and afflicted, cut off. He'll die, be executed, cut off from the land of the living. That's the first half of John 19. But now as this chapter comes to an end, John brings us to another prophecy of Isaiah 53. Of the suffering servant. Here's Isaiah 53, 9. His grave would be assigned with wicked men. Jesus should have been thrown out to the common garbage dump. Yet, and it's a key word, yet God had other plans. Yet God was still in control. Yet God is still sovereign. Yet God's servant would be with a rich man in his death. It's a total reversal of custom. Why? Because this is a prophetic sign that this servant, though he is killed for sin, allegedly, he is killed for sin, was in actuality the perfect one, that he had done no violence nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Being buried in a rich man's tomb was prophetic confirmation that Christ was the sinless Savior who Isaiah had promised. And again, this is an amazing fulfillment, an amazing fulfillment. All of this, amazing. This is unbeknownst to Pilate, what's happening Look at verse 38 again. Unbeknownst to him, he grants Joseph permission to take Jesus' body. And so Pilate, an evil ruler, is helping to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And through this decision to give Joseph Jesus' body, Pilate is affirming, he doesn't know it, but he's affirming that Jesus was God's suffering servant. He is the perfect righteous lamb. And so in fulfillment of God's design, Joseph came and took away Jesus' body. He is servant. He is also king. And thus, in verse 39, we see that Jesus is given a burial fit only for a king. Verse 39, Nicodemus, another follower now, 
who had first come to him by night also came. Nicodemus now takes his stand for Christ. This is now saving faith. This began with an inquiry back in John 3. John 19, it's a culmination of saving faith. Each of these men have chosen their sides. They're traitors now to the religious order. And yet to them it was worth it. Again, back to the point, I write these, why? So that you may believe like them. Is following Christ worth it for you? It should be. He has glorious identities. So Nicodemus, verse 39, he brought a mixture of myrrh. It's fragrant, expensive resin, aloes, spices. It's to cover the stench of death. About 100 pounds weight. Today's measurement, about 70 pounds. So this is no mere burial. Yes, it's a burial of the suffering servant, the righteous one, that is true. This is also the burial of a king. Second Chronicles 16, when King Asa died, he was covered with spices of various kinds. Same with Herod the Great. It's all the paradox. It's the paradox. Christ has been mocked by being called king at his trial. He's been humiliated by carrying that sign above the cross, the king of the Jews mocking him. And yet he is king. These two men give him the burial of a king. And this too fulfills Isaiah 53, the first part of it. Yes, the suffering servant would die, but listen how Isaiah 53 begins. This goes along with Zechariah 12. Here's the prophecies beginning. Behold, and you can translate this, be amazed at this. Be shocked by what I'm about to say. Behold, my servant, the lowly one, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then this note in verse 15, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. That's what happens in Zechariah 14. Kings shut their mouths. They have nothing to say. They have no defense. So he's buried in a rich man's tomb. He's a suffering servant. He's buried in a kingly way, he is this exalted coming king. And thus, verse 40, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Side note here, they could not do this until it was confirmed that Jesus was dead. Confirmation, Jesus actually died. And it sets the stage for the resurrection in the next chapter. Two other details, kingly details. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Again, another picture of Jesus' kingship. Old Testament kings were buried in palace gardens. And it's an expensive tomb, a new tomb. Verse 41, it's a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This tomb has been prepared specifically for Jesus. Jesus. 
And so Joseph and Nicodemus finish the prophecy here. And in verse 42, they lay Jesus there. Prophetic details. Prophetic details fulfilled to the letter, but notice, not fulfilled by Jesus. He's dead. He has nothing to do with this. These are prophetic details fulfilled by both Jesus' enemies, the soldiers fulfilling his Zechariah 12, and prophetic details fulfilled by his friends fulfilling Isaiah 53. It's a prophetic and amazing end to the condemnation and trial and crucifixion of the king. Who is Jesus? And no doubt we will have that question asked of us, especially at this time of year. Who is Jesus? And I know the temptation is going to be he's the baby born in a manger. I understand that. But skip ahead. Because he did not stay in a manger. Who is Jesus? Look at the end of chapter 20 for a moment. 2031, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the baby born in a manger. It's not how it ends. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And who is that? The Son of God. And so who is Jesus? If that question is asked, give them this answer. Give them John's answer. Jesus is the final Passover lamb who shields the sinner from God's wrath. He is the son who sends his people the Holy Spirit. He is the pierced God who will return in final judgment. And he is the suffering servant who paid the penalty for sin for all who come to him in saving faith who will also return as king and shut the mouth of every ruler. That's Jesus. And the question that John is asking, back up to verse 35, 1935, the question that he is asking is this, do you believe that? But not merely intellectually. Do you believe that like Joseph and Nicodemus? Do you believe those identities of Christ without fear, confessing the glory of your Savior? Father, I pray that we would indeed have that faith, that faith that only comes from you, that confession of the glorious Christ that shines bright in this world, Let us point people to the cross. Let us also point people to years later, at the very end, that coming day, when our Savior returns as conquering and victorious judge, ruler, and king. Let that truth give us hope now. We need not fear. We need to proclaim the glorious Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.